Well, as long as my uncle has been my uncle, uh, he has played a trick on me. Um, every time I see him, without fail, uh, he'll put his finger on my shirt and say, you have something on your shirt, while he's just staring at it. And, and I'm ashamed to admit that even as I grew, even as I aged, even as I saw this joke for the 20 umpteenth time, I fell for it more times than I like to admit. It was just, I'm like, well, no, okay, then he would, you know, bop me on the nose. Well, this weekend, I had the honor of officiating a wedding. Um, if you know Andrew and Angela, who've been attending here, they just got married uh, yesterday, and it was an awesome day and a great time to celebrate with them. But during the cocktail hour, the time between the ceremony and the reception, this wise sage came up to me. And I, I knew he was a wise sage because he had an awesome beard. And, and he comes up to me, and, and he puts his finger on my shirt. I, I, I talked with him once, but we didn't know each other. We just kind of passed each other and said hi kind of thing. And he puts his finger on my shirt uh, to tie on, puts it right on my tie, and says, you have something on your shirt. Now, I, it took me a moment. It, it's like in, in a split second, about two hours of conversation in my head went by. It's one of those, okay, I don't know this guy. He's probably just trying to be polite. Um, I, I just had a snack from the cocktail hour, so maybe something did fall on my tie. Um, but this seems a little fishy. And so do I believe what this stranger, who's got to be trusted, again, because of the beard, uh, do I believe what he is telling me to be true? Or do I learn from this, this history that I have with my uncle of being fooled into looking down and getting my nose bopped? I also had to wonder, would this stranger bop my nose if I actually looked down? That'd be kind of weird as well. And, and so I, I contemplated this, and it's all a matter of, of a split second. And, and I'm proud to admit that I was victorious in my unbelief. I did not believe he was telling the truth, and I was victorious in that. There was nothing on my shirt. And we had a laugh about it, and he said, you're, you're only the, the second guy out of like 20 that, that hasn't fallen for it. And I'm thinking, this guy has done this 22 times. I mean, this is, all right, he, he really gets a kick out of this trick, but okay. But I think there are, are greater things that actually matter in life, you know, more than getting your nose bopped by a stranger. Um, there are things where we have those moments of, do I believe this to be true? This is, everything I know up until this point tells me this, but now I'm getting some new information or, or there's something that changed that's leading me down this path. What do I believe to be true? And we have to analyze the information that's before us, we have to figure out, and then we have to move forward in some kind of action. And see, a lot of times doubt can kind of play in there. There's skepticism that can play into these moments. What's interesting, as we look at what doubt is, uh, there's a pastor, Timothy Keller, and he says this about doubt. Doubt relies on an alternate subterranean set of tactic belief in something else. To kind of simplify that, doubt or unbelief is actually a belief in something else. So this guy said, you have something on your shirt. I doubted him. Why? Because I believed my shirt to be clean. And so as we walk through this brand new series, Faith and Doubt, we're going to look at the relationship between those two things. We're going to look at the relationship between unbelief and belief. And we need to see that unbelief isn't all that different from belief. It's merely a belief of something else to be true. It's a belief in something else. But it's important to recognize this belief. Too often I've seen people reject faith in God altogether simply because they say, well, I have doubts. I used to believe this, I used to believe this, I used to believe this. And then a moment came in their life where there was something major, something significant. They said, I have doubts. 
and they abandon it altogether. Something else I've seen is someone who's pursuing Jesus but is crippled by guilt. They beat themselves up and you pursue that in conversation you find out, what, where does this come from? They say, well, I have doubts about my faith. So I'm not very good at what I claim to be, right? And they, they get crippled by that. And so it's important for us to look at the relationship between belief and unbelief, doubt and faith as we pursue Jesus together. See, doubt ultimately asks this question of, do I truly believe this to be true? So where, where do you struggle with doubt? I mean, I think if we're all honest with ourselves and honest with each other, we'd say, yeah, there are areas of my life that I have doubts, where I have questions, where I wonder, is there really something on my shirt? Maybe it's the character of God. You can read some of the stories, maybe even grew up in the church, you can recite and even teach some of the stories, but maybe something happened in your life where you questioned the character of God. Can God really be all-loving? Can God really be good? Can God really have our best in mind when I, when I think of this experience I went through or that experience that's happened in this world? Maybe there's stories of the Old Testament that you're like, that's just crazy. That, 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 no, no way did that happen. If you haven't gotten to that point yet, read about Balaam and his talking donkey, where God spoke through a donkey to get Balaam to, to stop in the direction that he was going. And this guy's like beating the snot out of his donkey because the donkey keeps stopping because he's seeing this angel of the Lord and finally God just speaks through the donkey. I'm like, okay, so some of those stories, I can understand. Like, I, I, is that really what happened? So maybe you struggle with doubt when it comes to the stories of the Old Testament. Maybe you struggle with doubt when it comes to the ex exclusivity of salvation found in Jesus. Maybe you have friends and family members who are of other religions and, and they're devout in that and they're, they're good, caring people. And you think to yourself, how could a loving God allow people like this to go to hell because they don't know Jesus? It, is it really true that Jesus is the only way to God? Maybe that, that's a doubt that you have and a struggle of yours. Sometimes just the problem of pain. Why is there suffering in this world can be a, a doubt of ours. It causes us to question so much. Something that's interesting about this is... Uh, the result of pain and tragedy in our life is not the same for each person. I could share stories up here about people who went through tragedy and it caused them to walk away from God completely. It's because of this hardship in my life, I, I cannot pursue, I cannot follow God. I've seen the exact opposite. People go through extreme tragedy and they say, that's what brought me to God. I was in such need and such... a. Uh, 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 I was all alone, and, and it brought me to God. Actually, I had the opportunity <coughs> in some of the projects we've been doing with the parking lot. We've had various contractors here from the guy putting in the silt fence, the guy cutting the concrete, to then the guy installing the cable after we cut the cable, putting the silt fence in, a whole bunch of fun stuff. <coughs> Excuse me. I had a chance to speak with this one gentleman who started to share his story a little bit. And he shared uh, where his faith came from, and he talked about uh, losing his infant son. And the journey he went through on that, and at one point, it, he, he completely ran from God. But then, in that same part of the story, before the story was over, it also brought him to God. And so tragic can, can do all kinds of different things in our life, but these are doubts that I'm sure a lot of us have. Do you doubt that God is working in your life, that he's working through your life? Do you doubt God's existence altogether? Maybe this is your first time in a church here this morning or you're still investigating who God is and who Jesus is and what that's all about. And you're like, you know what, I, this just sounds too wild. I, I, I doubt that this could be true. What are the doubts that plague your mind? Well, in the weeks ahead, we're going to be looking at faith and doubt. That's our new series that we're going to be in here 
for the month of September. And today we're going to begin with looking at the relationship between unbelief and belief. We're going to do that in the context of Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to that, Mark chapter 9, verse 14. Uh, you can also go digital if you want to turn on your Bible and use that. If you're not sure of uh, a Bible to use uh, online, I, I highly recommend Version. Uh, if you look it up, you can download it, and you can have all kinds of different versions. It's just a great tool, a great resource um, to get God's Word in front of you. So Mark chapter 9, verse 14. In our text this morning, as you're turning there, this takes place after the transfiguration of Jesus. And you ask, okay, what is that? Is he some kind of transformer? Was he a car before he became Jesus? No, not quite. Uh, but we read about Mark chapter 9, verse 2 and 3. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. So he's got three of the twelve disciples, and he brings them with him, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. So that's ultimately what we get. He was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And we continue to read in Mark chapter 9, we find out the prophets... Um, Elijah and Moses appear before the disciples there. We see that the voice of God the Father from heaven speaks, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And the disciples aren't quite sure what to do, and, and Peter, being Peter, jumps into action and, and feels like he has to solve, you know, okay, well, I, I see we've got Jesus, we've got Elijah and Moses. Hey, can, can, can I set some tents up? Can I, can I get a chair and, and, and a place for them to sit and dwell? And uh, before he knows it, it's back to just Jesus again. And so they just had this amazing experience seeing uh, Jesus transfigured and just become radiant with light. <coughs> they hear this voice from heaven, Father God saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. They saw the appearance of two other prophets who have come before Elijah and Moses. I mean, you want to talk about a mountaintop experience. experience. This was a mountaintop experience on an actual mountaintop. I mean, pretty epic. This is what happened right before what we're going to read about in Mark chapter 9. So now they're coming down from the mountain, Jesus and these three disciples. And what they're coming down to is where all the other disciples have been waiting. Mark 9, verse 14 and on. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd where they saw him were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. So Jesus comes down, and he finds these scribes arguing with the other disciples. Okay, what are the scribes? We hear about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, all these different religious leaders. Well, the scribes were religious leaders of sorts as well. They were experts in the law. It's so the law of God. They were experts. They would study it and figure it out. They'd be great debaters. I mean, they would have all the information at the tip of their tongue and could debate anyone. And so they're in an argument with the disciples. At one point, Jesus refers to uh, the Pharisees and the scribes are included in this. He says, you are like a whitewashed tomb. A whitewashed tomb. Basically saying, you look pretty on the outside, but you're dead inside. You look great on the outside. You, you, know, you, you look like you're walking with God, but you, you're truly dead inside. Because all you're trying to do is, is, is you're putting the weight and the focus on the law and not on the God who gave the law. And so these are the scribes, and they're arguing with the disciples. We're not sure why yet. We're going to find out here in a moment. But when Jesus comes down, I mean, he changes everything. And that, that is so true, uh, not only in, in Scripture, but in our own lives. When, when Jesus enters the picture, man, he changes everything. It's very likely he was even still radiant, you know, it's from the transfiguration. Um, but he had a presence and an authority about him that in the midst of this argument, he comes down, and everyone's like, oh, hang on, Jesus is back. Let's go talk to him. 
You ask, well, why does Jesus change everything? Well, even in, in this point of history where we stand today, we have to acknowledge the fact of who Jesus claimed to be. He claimed to be God, and then he proved it with his actions, with his words, with his death, resurrection, and his life. And for me, this is one of the primary reasons why my faith, why my belief starts in Jesus. As I look at his claims, as I look at the life that he lived, I'm left with the conclusion that who he claimed to be is who he truly was. That he was the Son of God. That he was, one of, we think of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that he is Jesus, the Son. So Jesus changes everything. The story continues in verse 16. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? So he's speaking to his disciples. Hey, what's, what's the debate here? What are you guys fighting about? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Well, it's not surprising once we kind of begin to see the characters involved here to find out who's the one that's quick to jump up and say, hey, here's what they're fighting about. Because this is the one who's got skin in the game. This is the one who doesn't care who's right. He just wants to see his son healed. And so he's got the son. He's like, you know what? There's this evil spirits in him that's caused him to be mute. It causes him to you know, have, have seizures in essence and be thrown to the ground, <coughs> foam at the mouth, grind his teeth, become rigid. And so I asked your disciples to cast them out, and they can't. They failed. And so obviously, you know, the disciples probably aren't going to be quick. Hey, here's why we're fighting. And I'm surprised you know, witnessed this to a certain extent, and so now they're trying to call them out and say, okay, well, if you can't cast out this demon, then is your Jesus really the Messiah? They're probably having some kind of debate like that. But this father in desperation to have his son healed, he could care less about the argument. The son is plagued by a demon, by an evil spirit, but the big issue here we also need to see is that the disciples were unable to heal the boy. And you say, well, Steve, is that un unordinary? Well, if we flip back to Mark chapter 6, we actually see a case where Jesus had sent out his disciples in pairs and given them the authority to cast out evil spirits. And so this is something that they've done before. And so if someone said, hey, where's Jesus? I have a, a boy that needs to be, uh, have an evil spirit cast out of him. They wouldn't just say, oh, well, Jesus is up on this mountaintop, you know, we'll wait until he gets back. No, they say, well, hey, we've done this before. We have history and experience with this. Bring the boy to us. And something like that probably played out, and yet they were unable to cast out this demon, this evil spirit. Verse 19, and he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Jesus makes it clear the issue here is one of faith. Or in this case, we, say, we should say faithlessness. Even hearing that, you may be like, well, hang on a second, Steve. We're talking about the disciples. These are people who abandon their way of life to follow Jesus. You're saying that they have struggles with faith? On one hand, maybe that scares you. Like, well, hey, if, if they had troubles with faith, I'm, I'm, I'm out of luck. But honestly, I hope it brings you hope to see that hey, even those who walked with Jesus had doubts, had, had issues of faithlessness that they had to work through. And Jesus says, how long am I to be with you? Now, some could say this is a reference to the cross. Uh, throughout this point of his, his ministry, he keeps telling the disciples, hey, a time is coming where, where I, will be, I will suffer for the sake of who I am. I'm going to the cross. But honestly, I think he's um, 
just kind of acknowledge it. Okay, how, how long until you believe? You know, how long do I have to be here? How much do you need to see before you truly begin to believe? I think his statement reveals what we would say that seeing is not believing. Have you ever thought to yourself in the midst of your doubt, if I could just see Jesus, if, if he would just be here today and he was preaching this message, or I could shake his hand or give him a hug or just even see him from a distance and truly know, yes, that is Jesus, then I would follow, then I would believe, that would wash away all my doubts. If that's ever been a hang-up for you, I want you to look at the people in the story because that's where they are. They're seeing Jesus. And they're struggling with doubt. They, they have questions still. So it, it's more than that. We have, on one hand, we have the crowd. And they're seeing Jesus, and, and they're seeing what's going on. But they're just intrigued by Jesus, but they're not invested in Jesus. They're intrigued by it all. Hey, we want to see what's going to happen. We want to see how this is going to play out. But at the end of the day, they're not willing to engage with Jesus in their own personal life. Do you know people like that, maybe? Maybe you're even at that place in your life right now. And one of the reasons why we always said that's okay is because we believe here at Meadowland Church that life is a journey, and that no one should have to walk that journey alone. And so one, one of the hearts, one of the desires of our heart is to walk with each other, to walk with people, and help them take the next step on their faith, in their faith, on that journey. And so if you're at the place where the crowd is right now, where they're intrigued by Jesus, but they're not involved in his life, they don't know enough about him, they're not invested in that, I would encourage you to, to make Connected here on a Sunday morning, a regular part of your week. And get to know some other people and get to know more about who this Jesus is. Become more than just a crowd looking for a show. We also have the scribes there. And the scribes are invested in the law that foretells Jesus, but they're not involved with Jesus himself. So they've been pursuing the, the holy books. They've been looking through what we would call the Old Testament. It wasn't that to them, but we call it the Old Testament now because we also have the writings that make up the New Testament. But they would be studying that, the, the, the Torah, um, the first five books of the Old Testament. They would be experts in the law. And that all, and all this foretells, prophesies about a coming Messiah, a Savior that will come. And then here he is right before him. And in all their studies, they completely miss it. They completely miss out. And they're not involved with Jesus. They don't engage with who he is, even though they're invested in, in, in the law. And again, maybe... You can relate to this. Maybe you know a lot of things about the Bible. You know a lot of stuff about Jesus. But when it comes down to it, you're not really involved with him in your daily life. You haven't put your trust and your faith fully in him. You just have a lot of head knowledge and you're living in that. Well, this is what a Christian looks like, right? That's would be similar to what the scribes were doing. This is what it looks like to follow God, right? And yet they were whitewashed tombs, pretty on the outside, dead on the inside. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you can relate to the disciples, where they were intrigued, invested, and involved with Jesus, but they were still imperfect in their faith. They were still imperfect in their faith in Jesus. There were aspects that they were unsure of and they didn't know, and we see that uh, exemplified in the fact they couldn't cast out this demon. So let's see what continues here. Mark chapter 9, verse 20. And they brought the boy to him. So Jesus calls, bring him to me. They brought the boy to him. And when the Spirit saw him, Immediately it convulsed the boy. Again, Jesus changes everything. And so now they're bringing the boy to Jesus. The spirit realizes who he's messing around with. And he's like, oh no, this is not good. It convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? 
And he said, from childhood. And has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. (coughs) This evil spirit, this demon possession, is worse than we first thought. Not only does it cause convulsions and foaming, it makes the boy be mute, but it tries to throw him into the waters or into, into fire. It's not only tormenting him, but it's trying to destroy him. And honestly, before we go on through Mark chapter 9, I think this raises another potential doubt that some of us may have. This question of, do, do evil spirits really exist? Do demons really exist? Uh, I think a lot of the people in the Old Testament that we see that were inflicted by an evil spirit, if we saw them today, we would just say, oh no, there's a mental illness that they're struggling with. And we just write it off as that. So maybe we have this doubt we need to deal with. Of, do demons really exist? Can they really possess and oppress people? Well, ultimately, um, more time will be needed than we have today to fully unpack this question. But it's worth acknowledging that as we see in Scripture that, that there's the existence of both, both demons and disease, illness. We see in Matthew chapter 1, and he, referring to Jesus, he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. So Jesus calls his disciples to himself and he gives them authority to cast out evil spirits and to heal every disease. And so we see that there's a both and. You know, something we don't talk about very often here, just it hasn't come up much, is the issue of mental health. And what does what God's heart on that? What does Scripture say about that? And just a real quick little tangent I want to share on this is we can go to God regardless of if, it, if it's evil spirits that are behind what's happening or if it's mental health issues. In both cases, we can go to God, trust in Him, rely on Him, seek Him uh, for healing and for protection. But if you're asking the question, well, how do we move forward? Well, we can do this. We can deal with physical matters in physical ways. So as we learn more about modern medicine, we learn more about the human body, uh, we can study it, we can see how things work, we can use uh, medicine, we can use therapy, we can use sometimes being in community and being in relationship with others can help in those steps of uh, where there's mental illness involved. We can deal with physical matters in the physical ways that we are equipped to, but then also we can deal with spiritual matters in the spiritual ways that we are equipped to, praying for those uh, who would have... um, you know, if we're not sure even, hey, I'm not sure if this is an evil spirit or, or mental illness, pursue both. Try to uh, seek out some physical healing as well as uh, go to the spiritual. Praying for them, fasting on their behalf, uh, laying hands on them, and, and look into Scripture to see what, is it, what does Scripture call us to, what does God call us to do when it comes to evil spirits, when it comes to illness. If we continue on our story, Mark 9, 22, the, the second half there, but if you can do anything... Have compassion on us and help us. This is the the Father speaking. If you can do anything, Jesus, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. You can only imagine standing before Jesus and saying, if you can do this, if there's something that you can do, he's like, if I can, do do, do you realize who you're talking to? This, This is Jesus here. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. You know, I think a lot of times when we're struggling with doubt in our lives, one of the things that God can use in, in our life is moments of desperation. Because I've seen time and time again where, where uh, desperation will move us beyond our doubt. 
that God moves us beyond that doubt by using desperation in our lives. We come to a point where the stakes are too great for inaction. And you can say that inaction is, is an action in and of itself, but we get to this point where like, we have to do something. And this father is desperate to have his son healed. This is why he brought him to Jesus, Jesus in the first place. And he asked Jesus uh, two questions that I think reveal some of the most common doubts that people have in, in our day and age. The first one is this. He asked Jesus, are you able... Are you able to do what I'm asking? Are you able to heal my son? If you can. He doesn't come to Jesus and say, heal my son. He says, if you can, heal my son. He's asking, are you able to do this? Are you the guy that I should be going to? And then in a sense, he asks, are you willing? He says, have compassion on us and help us. Would you help us, Jesus? If you can, would you? Are you able to? Can you? Are you willing to? I think these are two of the most common doubts, questions that we, we, we ask Jesus. As we go through different struggles and challenges in our lives and things that we come across, we, we have questions of, God, are you able to heal the broken relationships in my life? Whether it's a friendship that was strained through some conflict, work relationships that you're not quite sure how to work through and now it's awkward in, in the office, Maybe it's a marriage that's been deteriorating. You're hopeless. God, are you able to fix this? Man, I'm a mess right now. Can you really do a work in me that can bring me to a place where, where she would stay with me? We have these doubts of, God, are you able to? Are you willing to? I got some past hurts, God. There's been some offenses that have been committed against me. There's been abuses I've lived through. Are you willing to heal me? Are you willing to help me work through those? I think sometimes we question, we doubt, God, are you able, are you willing to provide for our needs? I think this, this question comes up specifically in two different cases. The first one is, is, I think, more obvious. When there's some kind of suffering, some kind of loss going on. We ask, God, are you able to meet my needs because I'm going through some hard times right now. I'm not sure where, where income is going to come from for all the bills I have coming in. I'm not sure where, where the next meal is coming from. Are you able to provide for me and my family? Are you willing to do that, God? I think the other time we question or we doubt God on this, are you able, is when it comes time for us to give and to sacrifice. Say, so God, if I sacrifice these finances, this cause, I, I think, gives you glory and honor. If, I'm, if I sacrifice these items that I have for someone else's sake, will you meet my needs? We get to those moments where we're not just giving out of our excess, but we're truly giving out of a sacrifice. Sometimes I think we have those doubts. God, are you able, are you willing to meet my needs as I want to honor you in this gift? I think another area where we have doubt, where we struggle with some of this, is uh, with rescue and healing for those that we love. Maybe you've been walking with Jesus for a long time and you have all kinds of family members and friends and neighbors you've come across who don't know Jesus and you wonder, Jesus, are you able to bring them to true life in Jesus? Are you willing to do that in their life? What's awesome in this is that we see that Jesus confirms that he is able in his words. Verse 23, all things are possible for one who believes. And as we're going to see as we continue to read, he's going to back it up by his actions. And he even confirms that he is willing to help. But a little caveat we got to put on this is when he shows his willingness to help, we always have to acknowledge, too, that's not always in the way we would expect. 
which is all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, this has become one of my favorite verses. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. If you've been kind of caught up in this concept of unbelief and belief as two opposites that can never coexist, look at this verse right here, Mark 9, 24. We see the genuine heart of this father whose son is in need of being healed. And he's standing before Jesus and he's saying, are you able, are you willing to help? And Jesus says, if you'd believe, all things are possible. He says, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, but I have doubts. I believe, but my belief is imperfect. Just like my life is imperfect, my belief is perfect as well. And I think that is where our doubt comes from. It's the fact that we're imperfect. Um, Do you know what an electrical panel looks like? If you don't, I'd encourage you to find one in your home and and take a look at it, because you may need to go there someday when you lose the power, when you blow a fuse. Um, but this is what the inside of one looks like. So usually the cover is on it, and you have all these little switches that go back and forth. If you take that cover off, uh, in most of them, this is similar to what you would see. And I want to draw your attention to the top. You see the really thick black wire and the really thick red wire. And those go down into this big black bar. That, that's the main switch on this fuse panel. And so what those two wires represent is that comes in from the street, from the underground. However power gets to your house, whatever building we're in, um, that's where the power comes in, and it goes to that first switch right there. And then from that switch, it has two bars that go down, and you put all those little switches on. So that main switch feeds all the other ones, okay? <coughs> I want you to think of faith as this electrical panel. And when this man goes to Jesus, Jesus and says, I believe, he's flipping that switch. And the power of God is now in his life, influencing it, flowing through it. In essence, you're saying, I trust in you, Jesus. You're right here. You're making yourself available to me. I believe in you. I want your life. I want your forgiveness. I want your power in my life. If you're able and if you're willing, which we see that he is to both. And so we flip that one fuse, and now there's power to the whole system. But then we look at each individual fuse. How, you see all the smaller wires that go off and to the side. What, what those are is you'd have a fuse for your uh, HVAC. You'd have a fuse for your kitchen, a fuse for your fridge. You'd have a fuse for a bedroom or for a bathroom. And it's a fun little trick if you ever want to. Um, you know, if someone's in the bathroom and, and, and it's late at night and they have the lights on, you'll go downstairs, you can find which fuse is for the bathroom and just flip it off. And then when they get out, you can say, why'd you do that? Say, well, I, I just want to share what I learned in church on Sunday. Um, so you, you flip that fuse one way and it kills all power to that, that area, that circuit. And I think that's what, what belief is like. Where we say, Jesus, I, I believe in you. I, I, I flip that main switch. I open up my life to you and say, I believe that you are God. I believe uh, um, that you have this ability to, to influence my life and this desire to. And you know what? When it comes um, to my family, my family room, yeah, I, I believe what you call me to, to do, how you call me to live with my family, yeah, I believe that. And we turn on that little fuse that, that gives that power to our, our family life. And, and then different aspects, you know, in the garage, okay, yeah, you know I, I, I believe that you want me to use my hobbies and my interests and my skill sets in a way that honors you and glorifies you, and, and so I'm going to try to use them in a way that does just that. I, I believe that, Father God. And so that fuse is on. 
But then we get to the fuse on, on finances and giving, and it's like, you know, I'm not sure I believe. I have doubts that, that you're really expecting me to, to give generously and to give to others, and we leave that one off. Or maybe it comes to an issue of a specific relationship where someone uh, wrongs you, and, and now the question is, will you forgive them? I don't know if, if I believe that, that I need to forgive them, Jesus. And we, we leave that one off. And there's areas of our life that we, we, we don't open up to Jesus. We still have doubt. We still have unbelief. And I think this is the example that this, this father is revealing. I, I believe that main breaker is on, but there's still areas of my life where I struggle with that belief. The best possible response to our doubts is I think the response that this father has where he cries out to Jesus, help my unbelief, help my unbelief. Stand on what you believe to be true as you test your doubts. Are you familiar with the game Don't Break the Ice? There's a game from my youth, maybe you've played it before. It looks just like this. It has a, that blue plastic frame and all these fake little ice cubes that would lock together. And you got the, the fun little guy who looks real happy. He doesn't even see what's coming. And he stands in the middle, and you put this whole thing together. And then you and your friends take turns with those little hammers beating out the different ice cubes. And the goal was to be able to beat out an ice cube without the whole thing collapsing and the red guy falling down to the bottom. And whenever that did, you set it back up and flip it over and, and play again. So if you, can, if you can get that concept, I want you to imagine that the red guy is the one playing the game. And so you give him the hammer, he comes to life, and, and pounding on those ice cubes is testing them. You're testing, is this something that's going to hold up? I think sometimes that's what we do in our doubt, and our skepticism. We say, is this really true? Like I said, I had a two-hour conversation in the midst of a, a split second when that guy said, there's something on your shirt. Is this really true? I've heard this before somewhere. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure my shirt's still clean. And we process through it. We test the waters. In this case, all of them, all those ice cubes, will fall through as, as they're being tested. No, this doesn't hold up. This doesn't hold up. But there's two places that the little red guy can test it from. He can stay right where he's at. He looks happy. He's kind of ice skating around the rink and enjoying himself. He can take that little hammer and say, let's see if this holds up and it falls through. Nope, that didn't hold up. There's no truth in that. Let me test this area of my life. Is this something I can build my life on? And before he knows it, it just all falls apart. But there's somewhere else he can stand. He can move to that outside ring, that blue frame, and then say, okay, I'm going to test this frame to see if this holds up. Okay, I'm also going to test, now someone's telling me this, I'm not sure about that, let me test this. Oh, that fell through. I'm not going to step there. Now all of a sudden he can see that, okay, this is, is what will stand true and the rest is not. We continue through that process in our life. We need to find solid ground with which to test our skepticism, which with, the, with which to test our doubts as we explore truth, place our faith in what we believe to be true. And for me, what that's looked like to my life, as I look at the evidence of God, as I look at the evidence of Jesus and his life, I see it to be true. Do I still have questions? Yes. Are, are there still aspects of faith that are difficult to believe? Yes. Is that main breaker turned on and saying, Jesus, coming into my life? Yes. Are, are there... Fuses in my life where there's still doubt. I'm like, well, I didn't even realize I hadn't opened up that aspect of my life to you yet because of doubt or faithlessness. But as I look at the evidence more and more, as I, as I look at the life of Jesus, what he claimed 
to do and then what he did. As I look at the life of the disciples, the pain that they're willing to endure, the death they're willing to receive for what they believe to be true, the resurrected Jesus. As I look at nature around me, as I look at the miracle of life, as I've witnessed my children being born three times over, as I look at my own experiences as I pursue God, I put all this together, I put all these evidences together, and I'm left with this, this foundation, this truth that God exists. And so I'm doing my best to stand on that solid frame as I test that which is before my life. To be quite honest, I think it takes greater faith to believe God doesn't exist. I think sometimes when people run against, run away from God, they say, oh, no, you know, we're not going to put our faith in something. We won't want to stand on what we know to be true. What's interesting is, is those things they say they know to be true, there's still questions about that. And there's still a testing that needs to take place. And so at the end of the day, no matter where we stand, there's an element of faith required. And as we understand that, look at the evidence and make your decision and continue to test that. And if you find, you know what, I was standing on, on, on ice that fell through, then, then we can get back up and continue to test until we find something that's firm and that stands. And if I can help you through my own experiences, through my own journey, I found that to be the life of Jesus Christ, of who he claimed to be and who he showed himself to be. Mark 9, 25, and when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. So Jesus heals the boy, permanently evicts the unclean spirit, says, Get out of him, never enter him again. It says that his body was like a corpse. It's just a, a violent experience, the spirit coming out of him. It was possible he was dead and Jesus brought him back to life, but the text doesn't confirm that. That's something else we're reading through Scripture. We need to be careful not to add things that aren't there. And so we see here, they just said it looked like a corpse. So at bare minimum, we can trust and believe that he looked dead. It doesn't say he was, he may have been, he may not have been. It just said he looked dead. But that says Jesus basically grabbed him by the hand and he stood up. He arose. Remember Jesus' words, all things are possible for one who believes. Because of this desperate father's imperfect belief, Jesus healed his son. See, the focus of our faith is of greater significance than the fullness of our faith. I want you to hear that again. The focus of our faith is of much greater significance than the fullness of our faith. Who our faith is on is what matters so much more than how large our faith is or how deep it goes in our lives. We see this in Matthew 17, verse 20. This is another account of the same situation, the same story. Jesus speaking to his disciples, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. <coughs> now the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. He's saying, It doesn't matter how much you have, the smallest bit of faith, and nothing will be impossible. So now we get a change of setting for the disciples. Basically, all this has taken place. He heals the boy, and then at some point, they end up back at someone's house. Verse 28, when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And that's still kind of the big elephant in the room, right? Why couldn't the disciples who had already cast out demons before, why couldn't they cast this one out? And Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. 
So the first chance the disciples have to kind of talk privately with Jesus, they say, hey, what, what gives? What did we do wrong? Uh, do we say the wrong words? What is it? Why couldn't we cast this spirit out? And at first glance, it's easy to dismiss this and say, oh, this kind cannot be driven out. This must have been a special class of, of evil spirit that only Jesus could drive out. And so that's all it is. Case closed, nothing to learn here. But as we really look into what he's saying, he's not saying that this is a special kind of evil spirit. Basically, this kind is referring to evil spirits. Saying evil spirits cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Okay, so were they trying to do a prayerless exorcism? What does that even look like? Basically, the disciples, as they're trying to cast out this demon, this evil spirit, their faith was in themselves. Their faith was in their own strength. Oh, this boy needs a demon cast out? Hey, we're one of Jesus' disciples. We're pretty cool stuff. We'll take care of it. We see that their belief was in their previous successes, not in the source of that success. Again, Mark 6, 13 is where we can go to see that they were sent out and that they were, they were given the authority to cast out demons and they went in the authority of Jesus to go and cast in his power to cast them out. And so in their own power, based off of their previous successes, they probably tried to cast out this spirit. They turned to themselves and not to their Savior. So Jesus, when he says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer, basically he's saying that this can't be driven out apart from God. Excuse me. And so when we pray, we must declare our need for God, acknowledge our faith in him as the source of life. In the case of the disciples, their lack of prayer revealed a lack of faith. This is something that we can look at our own life and say, is there an area of our lives that's lacking prayer? Is there something going on in your life that you just long for God to intervene. You long to see God's wisdom. What should I do in this situation? First question I would ask is, have you taken it to prayer? Have you taken it to God and said, God, guide me in this. Help me to see wisdom in this situation. Help me to understand what it would look like to follow uh, in a way that would bring you glory and honor in this situation. Have you brought it to prayer? If you haven't, I think the next question we need to ask ourselves, is there a lack of faith there? Is there a, a doubt there? Do you believe that God can intervene in that situation in your life? See, even though our faith can be imperfect, the one that our faith is in is the one who is perfect. And if you're struggling with doubt, there's hope. 2 Timothy 2.3, I'm sorry, 2.13 says, if we are faithless, he is referring to Jesus, referring to God. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. So even as we struggle through these issues of unbelief, even as we struggle through doubt, God is still going to continue to remain faithful to us and make himself available to us because he is able and because he is willing. So in our struggle with doubt, let us be like the desperate father. Let us run to Jesus and cry, I believe, help my unbelief. If you're struggling with doubt today, as we continue to walk through this, as we, uh, next week we're talking about uh, faith and trust in Jesus, and then we're talking about some of the different areas in which we have doubt. If this is something that's striking a chord with you, or someone you would know that you want to share this with, my encouragement to you is that we would run to Jesus. Even if your doubt is about Jesus himself, let's be like the little guy and don't break the ice testing what we stand on. If anything else, you'll say, hey, is there truth to this? And so if you have doubt in even who Jesus is, let's go to Jesus and explore. <coughs> let's run to him saying, 
I believe. Help my unbelief. Let us pray. Father God, you are an amazing God. We thank you so much for the story uh, of this possessed boy who was healed by you. Jesus, we thank you that you are able to intervene in our lives. You're able uh, to do all things. We thank you that you are willing to engage in our lives. You're willing to be a part of our lives. You desire that, Father. Father, we confess that we have doubts. There's aspects of faith that we, where we have unbelief. We're broken. We're imperfect. And so it makes sense that our faith would be broken and, perfect and imperfect as well. But we place our hope in you, Jesus, knowing and believing and trusting that you are perfect. And so while our faith is broken and imperfect, you are perfect. You are sovereign. You are able to do all things. Your word promises that you will work for the good of those who love you. And so as we work through our doubts here, Father, I pray that we would run to you with the exclamation of a desperate father wanting to see his son healed that we would cry to you, I believe, help my unbelief. And I pray in the weeks ahead, in the moments ahead, in this day, Father, that you would meet with us. You would heal where healing is needed. You would restore where restoration is needed. You would give hope where we need hope. You would give a firm foundation where we're enduring storms and struggles in life. You would surround us with your community, Father God, that we would see you in your word. We would see you in your bride, the church. We would see you through your Holy Spirit in our lives. And that we could flip over some more switches in our life, allowing your power into those aspects of our lives. We move closer and closer in a, in a full belief. You'd make us to be like you, Father. We love you. In your name, amen.